going to look at the book of Ezekiel together. The book of Ezekiel. Um, we read Ezekiel at the outset, uh, that passage about the dry bones coming to life. I don't think I'm going to read it again. We're going to be surfing our way through the entire book, so maybe, maybe the best place to start is just in Ezekiel uh, chapter 1, if you want to open your Bibles there and uh, follow along uh, as we work through this book of Ezekiel, figuring out, well, what it's about, how it points to the Lord Jesus Christ, and what, if anything, it has to say to us. Of course, it does have something to say to us, and what it has to say to us is this, where are you looking for life? Where are you looking for life? Right? We ask that to the people in this world. People look all sorts of places for life, don't they? People look maybe to sports for life, and they live and die with their sports team. I used to be like that growing up. I used to cry every time the Red Wings would lose, especially when they lost in the Stanley Cup Finals. I cried for weeks. Um, I've since grown out of that as the Red Wings have no longer decided to keep winning. Um, but uh, some of us look, right, some people around the world, they look, they look to things like money, power, career, family, children, right? Where are you looking for life? That is the question that is ultimately put to us by the book of Ezekiel. Michael Williams, my former professor at Calvin Seminary, wrote a book that sort of encapsulates, uh, summarizes each of the books of the Bible, says this, Judah's end had not come all at once. Even before the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., an event lamented in the previous book of Lamentations, Babylon had already devastated the nation. Judah had come under Babylon's control in 605 B.C. Several years later in 597 B.C., after Judah's king Jehoiakim had rebelled against, against Babylonian rule, King Nebuchadnezzar paid the capital city an unpleasant visit. He took away the treasures of the royal palace and the temple, put a new king named Zedekiah on the throne, and took away into exile 10,000 people, including the king. One of those people taken was a young man named Ezekiel, whom God called to be a prophet from his place of exile in Babylon. With graphic imagery, Picturesque language, symbolic acts, and powerful words, Ezekiel's prophecies showed God's people that the slow death they were experiencing was a natural consequence of their gradual but relentless turning away from the one who gives life. So Ezekiel prophesies both before and after Jerusalem's fall in 586 B.C. That's when Jerusalem fell once and for all. But Ezekiel, along with about 10,000 others, was actually taken into captivity some 11 years earlier, right? So the fall, like William said, uh, it didn't come all at once. It came over a period of time. And Ezekiel was one of the first people to be taken into captivity in Babylon, right? So we might say the exile took place in two stages, there was an initial exile in 597 B.C., then there was another exile in 586 B.C. when Jerusalem uh, was finally destroyed. Ezekiel was caught up in the first exile, and he prophesied from Babylon in the days leading up to Jerusalem's final destruction. And he basically told God's people 
the death you are dying is the consequence of your sin. The death you are dying is the consequence of your turning away from God to idols. The book of Ezekiel can be broken up into four parts. As you may know, the book of Ezekiel is crazy. There's like in my uh, study Bible, it talks about like history of interpretation and it talks about how people have actually saw Ezekiel just, just thought, Ezekiel saw an alien spaceship, like, visit him. Like, those are real theories in the scholarly world. Of course, we reject those. But it is a little bit of a strange book, if you've ever spent any time in it. Part 1 consists of chapters 1 through 3. And here we read about Ezekiel's call and commissioning. Often the prophets sort of begin this way. If you take a look at chapter 1, verse 1, this is what you'll see. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day... While I, he's talking in the first person, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens opened and I saw visions of God. In the rest of chapter 1 then, Ezekiel goes on to describe this manifestation of God's glory that he witnessed in this vision. And there's some awfully remarkable things said here. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet. And I will speak to you. As he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen... For they are a rebellious house. They will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you, and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked, and I saw a hand stretched out to me, and it was a scroll which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll, then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I'm giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. He then said to me, Son of man, go now to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. That's Ezekiel's call and commissioning. You know, I was called into ministry, but the Lord never said, eat this, eat this. Maybe he sort of did, I don't know, but... uh, it's funny. We read that somewhere else. Who else? Was that Jeremiah, maybe? I think had something similar happen to him. The Lord said, eat this. Anyway, section 2 is chapter 4 through 24. And in this section, Ezekiel speaks words of judgment against Israel. The crux of this section, chapters 4 through 24, is, is chapters 8 through 11, if you want to get there to chapter 8. Here, Ezekiel has another vision. We read starting at chapter 8, verse 1. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, 
the hand of the sovereign Lord came upon me there. I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire. And from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven. And in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance to the north gate of the inner court, where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood. So what's happening here is that the Spirit takes Ezekiel to the temple in Jerusalem. And the scene here really, it reminded me as I was reading it of what happens to Ebenezer Scrooge in the Christmas carol, right? When the various ghosts, they take him to places and allow him to gaze on the various happenings there. And and of course, no one can see him, right? He goes into the past, to the present, to the future. No one can see him. He's sort of a silent observer of everything happening. Well, that's that's sort of what's happening here to to Ezekiel in chapters 8 through 11, And he's brought to the temple in Jerusalem. Remember, he's in exile, but he's brought to the temple in Jerusalem. And he's enabled to see that the temple in Jerusalem is filled with idols and with the worship of idols. And then in chapter 9, he witnesses all the idolaters in Jerusalem killed for their sin. And then in chapter 10, he, he, he sees what to an Israelite would have been the most devastating thing imaginable. And when we read this sort of thing, we can't hardly wrap our minds around it as new covenant people, but this was the absolutely most devastating thing that could have happened in Israel. The glory of the Lord departs from the temple. Okay, in chapter 10, he sees God evacuate the holy city. In the holy dwelling, verse 18, chapter 10, Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. That is, that is worst case scenario for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And then in the first half of chapter 11, Ezekiel witnesses judgment against Israel's leaders. And in the last half of chapter 11, he receives from the Lord a word of hope for the future where the Lord promises to gather his people from the nations and give them back the land of Israel again. So chapters 8 through 11, they're they're the crux of section 2, but the climax of section 2 is actually the last chapter of it, chapter 24. Here we read about the fall of Jerusalem, chapter 24. And what's interesting is that this event, it, it coincides... The things that these prophets went through, they had to like live out these living parables in their lives. Jeremiah had the same thing. Ezekiel did too. The fall of Jerusalem in chapter 24, it coincides with the death of Ezekiel's wife, all right? And what's interesting, um, or, or, and um, what's going on here is that the, the grief of Ezekiel over the death of one who is the delight of his eyes, he said, it's meant to, it's meant to symbolize just how devastating the fall of Jerusalem would be for the exiles. So this, this sort of providential parable, parallel, this living parable taking place here. Ezekiel loses his wife, who he says is the delight of his eyes, and Israel is going to lose Jerusalem, which is in much the same way the delight of their eyes. And it's meant to get at just how, just how devastating the fall of Jerusalem was for the people of God. Section 3, by the way, I'm thankful God hasn't called me to 
any living parables at this point yet. But uh, the prophets, prophets had, to, had to do stuff like that. Uh, Jeremiah bought a field, you might remember, and that field was meant to be a down payment that God would bring his people back. He got a better deal. Um, he got land in his living parable. Ezekiel lost his wife. Um, but uh, that's, that's how it works. Section 3 consists of chapters 25 through 32. And here we have a series of, of judgments against the nations. And this is, how, this is how it often goes in the prophets. We see the same thing in Jeremiah and in Isaiah. Okay, judgment always begins in the house of God, but it never ends there. The nations, too, will be judged for their sin, and that's what happens in chapters 25 through 32. And then the final section is chapters 33 to 48, and, and this section is filled with hope. As in it, the Lord, through Ezekiel, issues a promise that he will restore his people. He will dwell among them again. Okay, the crux of these chapters is chapter 43, where the, Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord returning to the temple. Right? So the problem is resolved, but this is something that is yet to come. It's something that's going to happen in the future, but there is hope. He does give God's people a reason to press on in faith. Now, what are some of the primary themes of Ezekiel? Well, let me give you, uh, let me give you three. The first one is the transcendence of God. The transcendence of God. The book of Ezekiel, very much like the book of Revelation, emphasizes the fact that God is not like us. No, He is transcendent. He is superior. He is other. He is holy. Might screw you up now, but you go back to chapter 1. Chapter 1, starting at verse 4, and this is actually what people throughout the ages have said. He's seeing a spaceship. Like, seriously, it's more realistic that he's... This is the kind of people we're dealing with in the world. It's really, he's seeing a spaceship. You don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, but you believe Ezekiel saw a spaceship, right? But uh, chapter 1, starting at verse 4, I looked, and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had a face of a man, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on either side, and two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. 
When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved, and when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the Spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them because the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them because the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out. Above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse sparkling like ice and awesome. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire, And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Right? That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? (laughs) The point is, Our God is holy other to the point that he pretty much defies vocabulary. I love how when you read chapter 1, you'll see Ezekiel use the word like, at least that's how it's translated, but he uses the word like several times. It's like as he sees the glory of the Lord, he's just grasping for adjectives to describe what he is seeing. He can hardly do it. It's like this. It's like that. That's the closest thing to which I can compare it. God is beyond us. He is transcendent. And what can one do before a God like this? But what Ezekiel does, you'll see it there. When I saw it, I fell face down. It's all you can do. It's all anyone ever does when they're confronted with the glory of the Lord. A second theme in Ezekiel, and I'll I'll just combine the second and third themes, the justice and mercy of God. You see this a lot in the prophets. Um. Israel's a rebellious nation. They've sinned, and God is going to judge them for it. Ezekiel makes that clear throughout the book. Ezekiel 5, 7, and 8. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You've been more than unruly. You've been more unruly than the nations around you, and you've not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You've not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of of the nations, all right? And you see words like that throughout the book. They have sinned, and God, God is against them because of their sin. God is a just God, and He's not going to let sin go unpunished. That's over and over and over what we see in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 17, 4, the soul who sins is the one who will die. Simple as that. In Ezekiel, we see much of the justice of God. We also see God's mercy, right? The two come together throughout this book. On the one hand, we see him treating Israel as their sins deserve. On the other hand, we we see him treating Israel not as their sins deserve. For instance, Ezekiel 14, 21 through 23. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. How much worse will it be when I send against Jerusalem my four dreadful judgments, sword and famine and wild beasts and plague, to kill its men and their animals? Yet there will be some survivors. Sons and daughters who will be brought out of it. Okay, in his mercy, God says, I, I'm going to bring forth judgment, but I'm also going to, to preserve a remnant. 
I'm not going to wipe you all out. I'm going to remain faithful to my promises to Abraham. In Ezekiel 43, then, we read about the glory returning to the temple. In Ezekiel 48, we read about the Lord dwelling with His people again. So the Lord's mercy is also seen in this book, and it's it's something when you think about it. These people were worshiping idols in the house of God, right? They deserve to have the Lord depart from them and never return, yet even still the Lord promises restoration. He says, I will again dwell in the midst of my people. I will put within you a new heart and new spirit that is able to worship me and find life in me. Okay, the Lord's, the Lord's going to bring judgment, but he's not going to abandon these people. He's not going to cast them off forever. No, he's going to bring them back. He's going to save them. That is, that is mercy. And so we see this, this theme of judgment, and we see this theme of mercy, and the two are kind of playing against one another throughout the book. It leads to the third point. How do we see Christ in the book of Ezekiel? Maybe the most important point. I'm going to give you some specific ways first, quickly, and then I'll give you a general way. How do we see Christ in the book of Ezekiel? We see Him in chapter 1. The glory of the Lord visits Ezekiel in exile. This is quite remarkable, since the Lord's presence at this time was usually confined to Jerusalem. You want to you be in the presence of the Lord, you've got to go to Jerusalem. You've got to go to the temple. Yet the glory of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, it visits Ezekiel in exile. When he's, when he's among the exiles by the Kibar River. And this reminds us of what happened at the incarnation when Jesus left his father's side to come and to dwell among us. To identify with sinful man. In chapter 14, we read about how no one can be found to turn aside the Lord's judgment against Judah. There you, um, there you see the Lord in chapter 14 talking about how if, if, if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in this city, only those three would be saved. But there's no one who can turn aside the judgment against Judah because of her sins. Of course, we know that anticipates it. Look forward to the Lord Jesus, who would be the one who could turn aside the Lord's judgment against not just the sins of Judah, but the sins of the whole world. Chapter 34, here we read about an indictment against the shepherds of Israel who cared more for themselves than for the people of God. This is an indictment against the leaders in Israel. And the Lord goes on to promise that a time is coming when He Himself will be the shepherd of His people. He Himself will care for His people. Once again, we see Jesus here because who is Jesus? Jesus is the good shepherd whose coming was foretold in Ezekiel. Chapter 37, right? That exciting chapter. We read about the dry bones coming to life. Again, it's, it's in a vision that Ezekiel's having. But as we see that, we can't help but think of the, of the new life that is afforded to us in Christ. In fact, when I read Ezekiel 37, my mind goes straight to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. And so, in that seen with the dry bones coming to life, we're, we're reminded of what God does in us through the gospel, right? 
Apart from, apart from the grace of God and the gospel, we are the dry bones. We are, we are those who are spiritually dead, spiritually withered, spiritually decayed. But God, through the gospel and by His Spirit, He breathes life into us. He puts flesh on these bones and He enables us to live for Him and serve Him. Those are some specific ways. Let me give you a general way that Christ is seen in Ezekiel. It really just involves the idea of God's presence. God's presence is kind of the, the, the drama, if you will, throughout the book of Ezekiel. His presence visits Ezekiel in exile. His presence departs from Jerusalem because of her sin. His presence will return. That's the message of hope Ezekiel ends with. Of course, we turn to the New Testament, and what happens? Well, God's presence becomes expressly manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And just as God's presence brings life in the book of Ezekiel, so does our Lord Jesus bring life in the New Testament, right? I am the way and the truth and the life, he says. Finally, contemporary application what does the book of Ezekiel have to say to us today? It's always a, maybe a frightening question to ask. It's a super oversimplification. It has a tons of things to say to us today. But if we might look at the book as a whole, it simply makes it clear that God's presence, God's presence is what matters. God's presence is what matters. Again, the problem in the book of Ezekiel is that because of Judah's sin, God's presence leaves the temple. God's presence departs from the premises. That's a problem. That is bad. When God's presence leaves, chaos and death death ensue. When God's presence leaves, the future can be nothing for anybody but a valley of dry bones. Of course, when the book of Ezekiel looks forward to the promise of restoration, to the promise of God's presence returning, what is it that comes about at the same time? It's life. Right, it's life. If you, if you read the last chapters of Ezekiel, you'll read about streams of living water flowing out of the city, and you'll read about the fields teeming with animals and the rivers teeming with fish. Life comes when the presence of God comes. So the presence of God is what, is what matters. The presence of God is, is what brings life and, and salvation. The presence of God is really where, where paradise is found. So the question is, to what are you looking for life? To what are you looking for life? Are you looking for life in the things of this world? Or are you looking for life in a relationship with the living God? To what are you looking for life? To what are you looking for joy and satisfaction and comfort and hope? You know, none of us by nature looks to God for those things. But it's only in God that they are found. And so let us close tonight by asking God to help us find the life and joy and satisfaction that His presence alone can bring. We need Him to help us want His presence and desire His presence and be blessed by His presence. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you alone bring life. And we confess tonight that we are people 
who've been made so foolish by sin that we look for life in all the wrong places. We look for it everywhere it can't be found. Lord, we need you to change our hearts. We need you to help us say that earth has nothing we desire besides you. Would you do that tonight, O God? Would you enable us to find life in you? Would you enable us to to seek your presence and find your presence and know your presence and do so more and more every day? All this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Why don't you stand for the parting blessing and then we'll sing our closing song together. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and grant you His peace. Amen. Our closing song is Glorify Thy Name. You might know it by heart, but it's number 29 in the blue hymnal for worship and celebration. We'll sing all of it.